we memorialized the first five months of, of COVID, of the pandemic from January, 2020 to May, 2020. Um, and the reason that we did that is because people are beginning to forget again what it was like at the very beginning, just like they forgot or weren't born yet at the beginning of the AIDS epidemic. And um, you know, certainly a lot of people that are in healthcare today were not born or around or in healthcare during the HIV epidemic. And we'll find the same thing happening with the COVID pandemic. My Newark days or the experiences you guys have. So I look forward to it. Where were you? Where did you work in Newark? Uh, St. Michael's Medical Center. So the Peter Ho Clinic, uh, which is very well known yeah. uh, for HIV. And uh, as you can imagine Newark, you know, ground zero. It's, it's pronounced Newark, N-O-R-K, not Newark. <laughs> oh, you're right. It's Newark, Delaware, Newark, New Jersey. So. Newark. <laughs> okay. N-O-R-K, Newark. No, you know, because I grew up in Maryland. So there's a Newark. Uh, I grew Newark. up in Newark. I know. Are you oh, a, you're a Newark man, huh? No, I, no, I, I actually, I, let me take that back. You grew up in West Orange. My East Orange, my East Orange family will be uh, disenfranchised. I went to medical school in, in Newark. So. I was going to oh, say, you grew up in West Orange, okay. I'm pretty sure. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, ladies and gentlemen, this is Recommended Daily Dose. We have two lovely guests, Ellen Matzer and Valerie Hughes, both registered nurses and authors of two books. The first book is Nurses on the Inside, Stories of HIV, AIDS Epidemic in NYC, which I think is, um, we see some definite similarities with the COVID pandemic. So we definitely want to get to that. And a new book, Beyond the Mask, which is a fictional psychological chronicle of six healthcare workers in a callous city hospital system. That sounds like where we work now. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we're very excited to have you both here. I mean, uh, authors, RNs, your background, and, uh, you know, it's it's very exciting uh, to have you both on. So welcome. Thank you. Thanks. So tell us a little bit about your background. I think there's a lot to dive into here. And, uh, you know, uh, my colleague here, Clinton, can get lost sometimes. So we want to stick, you know, stick to the subject matter. I'm just joking, Clinton, by the way. Uh, but no, but tell us your backgrounds and then, you know, how you got into uh your experiences with HIV and AIDS and this in this pandemic that you know now with COVID nineteen people forget that you know New York was the epicenter the original the original yeah. COVID uh, exactly and then you know how you trans uh, you know transformed all that experience into these great books and we want to hear about your books as well sure so uh, Val and I um, we've both been nurses uh, I I in seven, from nineteen seventy eight on and Val seventy six on so. Uh, we're, I'm approaching 45 years and Val is approaching uh, over that. And uh, we met. Uh, <laughs> that was very tactfully. That was nice, Touché. Ellen. Thank you. <laughs> so uh, we met in 1979, uh, where I had just transferred to Roosevelt Hospital in New York City. And uh, we were working both in critical care at that time when we started to see unusual presentations of uh, men who came in after suffering from mostly uh, what men. was most, yes, mostly men at that time. I did uh, uh, my residency uh, at, at Roosevelt and I finished oh. that in 2007. 
Oh, we were long gone by then. Long gone. <laughs> long gone at our second HIV unit by then. Are you talking uh, uh, like early 80s, around 81? No. When was we're talking like about 80s? late 70s, actually. Right now, late we're talking about late 70s. We, yeah. That's where we met in 79 when we started to see our first patients by late 79, early 1980, but we didn't know it at the time. So um, tell us about, I would love, you know, as an infectious disease doctor, someone takes care of HIV. I mean, this is fascinating to me. I mean, um, Predominantly, I'm assuming in, in a certain segment of the population, so men, uh, how are they presenting? Was it like fevers on an origin? Was it lymphadenopathy? Was all the above? Like what well, were well, we well, at the uh, time we saw them, they were getting intubated. ready to get intubated. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, I mean, was, we didn't, we didn't, you know, look back on history for a while. I mean, we, you know, as an ICU, uh, we were just told we were getting an intubated patient, and. Um, it was only when we looked back, when we realized what was happening, when we were able to get histories that, again, they had gotten gone through that latency period of, you know, the flu-like syndrome, and they had already seen uh, their primary care doctors, told to go home, take Tylenol, rest, drink fluids, et cetera. Sometimes they went back to their primary care, maybe got put on a course of antibiotics, inhalers, and by the time we saw them, uh, they were hypoxic. Yeah, this was pre ZPAC, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And probably, uh, I'm assuming that PCP. On the presenting, it was. It, it was probably PCP. It was. PCP, it was. PJP, right? Yeah. The so. first time, I mean, back then we didn't bronch people. So yeah. we didn't know uh, until one case occurred where we actually, uh, one doctor did perform a bronchoscopy and came back pneumocystis. And that was the first case we ever knew. And we couldn't figure out how somebody like that, it was a 62 year old French physician who had pneumocystis uh, by, uh, by bronchoscopy. And we just figured at that time, cause that was probably 80 um, that everybody was, was wondering, all right, well, we didn't think about the immune system. We just thought maybe pneumocystis had developed a new virulence. And that New was the popular... in immunocompetent people, right? Because obviously everyone had known that it would be an immunocompromised patients, but there's no, I'm assuming yeah, there's no there, Remember back the, in those days, there were no big, big uh, transplant patients. No, sure. right. there wasn't right. any of that stuff. And so, no, you know, we didn't think about T cells. We didn't, yeah, nobody ever, there was no such thing as a BNT panel back then. Mm -hmm. I see. All yeah, of no, that no. stuff. Was, no we biologics, no TNF inhibitors. Um, what no, was, no. The, uh, was infectious disease was really infancy back then. So it wasn't, in fact, nobody. Uh, we had one doc who was ID, and he right. was woefully, woefully underutilized up, up until this time. Yeah, and that was it. That's what we had. Yeah. So we just, uh, you know, we just figured, you know, we'd see a group of patients, and and don't forget, in 1980, 81, and so forth. I mean. Again, no social media, no no, no cell electronic phones. medical records, no cell phones, no interhospital communication, nothing. Right. So we we thought what we were seeing was confined to our particular ICU, right. and that it would come and go, and that would be that. You know, little did we know that we were on a precipice of a major epidemic. We had no idea until so we saw think, that right. article. If you think about the things that we saw, we would see one patient, then a couple of months later, we might see another patient. And then uh, I can remember once when you had that patient who you thought might have a toxic shock because sure. uh, you thought she might have a retained um, 
tampon and mm -hmm. we, we yeah, looked yeah. and there wasn't one. And it turns out that she was a person uh, who does uh, sex for, uh, for money. And so, um, and then there was a woman who we thought had psittacosis for God's sake. And so it was a very weird constellation of presentations. Always That's high fevers, good. ground glass opacities, nothing sort of that you could put together and really understand. And there, while their their CBCs were weird, they yeah. were it did not. It, I think in many cases it didn't trigger the kind of workup. Workup. Well, not there wasn't a workup to be done. Yeah. There was it. There was so much of the laboratory stuff that you rely on all the time had not been developed. Well, of course, I mean at that time didn't know when. When this was first described, no one knew about the etiology, right? The HIV one. That's HIV. right. It came several years later uh, with a French yes. scientist. How long? Uh, can I? How long did it take for doctors and nurses to realize that this was HIV? Like, what? What is the timeline? Because it's not like now on Twitter we know in Wuhan there's an outbreak, and then next right. week it's going to be an outbreak here. Like, mm -hmm. I want to say eighty-two. So a few years. Wow. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I mean, it, it we, saw, sporadic, right, we saw some weirdnesses in 79, some more in 80, and in 81, of course, I, le I left New York at that time. I went to work at a refugee camp in um, Thailand, a Cambodian refugee camp, and so I was gone for about nine months, and then when I got back, HIV was well entrenched, we, yeah, and that we was 81. Yeah, 81, and then, yeah, so we- But you know, they we were calling know. it grids. Um, they, you know, there had been some letters. The MMWR had made some uh, notations that there was Kaposi sarcoma noted in a peculiar distribution. Um, right. And nobody even know, knew what KS was back then. They had no idea it was right. a virus too. Mm -hmm. So it, it, we were totally in the dark about everything. And we how, was it, how was it received uh, since, and of course, we'll talk about it, you know, Clinton and I always uh, uh, are very passionate about talking about disparities in healthcare and how, you know, um, pandemics like HIV and then, of course, COVID-19 and otherwise have revealed uh, a, in, in, in a, you know, inequality in healthcare. But certainly um, in the early days, there was certain populations where there may and probably still exists um, some uh, some bias towards. And so how was this taken initially when initial cases were coming in either from lower socioeconomic, IVDU, MSM, you know, these populations? Well, you can imagine. I mean, if you think the gay people are reviled now, you should have seen what it was like then. It was horrible. I mean, we would we'd go on rounds and there was this one particular person who would always say, hmm, well, what do you expect? And uh, would make a crude comment about men who have sex with men. And it was yeah. just sort of uh, very disheartening. And there there was this other thing that went on. I, I don't know if you ever read The House of God, but there was- this uh, You know, yeah. uh, the, the fat man was actually based upon um, Clinton's uh, uh, experiences and residencies. And, you, oh, you're, and you're the gomer that goes to the ground. I, I'm the gomer goes to ground. I, right. I, I read that right before my internship year. And, uh, you know, whether it's the Lasix dose, uh, gomers go to the ground, they can always hurt you more. First thing in a code, take your impulse. Uh, I know we're sidetracked, but yeah. that book is gold. It's absolute gold. <laughs> so would you characterize these the, the population as vulnerable, though, I guess? Oh, well, yes, in very many ways. Yeah. Certainly are the women who were sex workers definitely got the shaft. They were totally ignored. Um, mm. But there was a complete revulsion for people who were gay. And wow. so once they called it, started calling it grids, 
then you know they were a disposable population and we put them in the back room and that was that and, and i'm sorry just want to take care uh, of them either you may not be aware of that that acronym i mean uh, this is gay related immunodeficiency is right that what it was? so that's mm -hmm. what they called it before they called yes, it yes grids mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that I had not heard the term. Uh, that that's, that's it was an it was written in the charts. Grid, you know. Um, really? Right. Wow. Oh yeah, it was so, written in the charts. Grid for a what for a good long. So a lot time. of gay men would never interact with the healthcare system. So the only time it was that they ever did was really at the end of their lives when someone called nine one one, and they were brought in. And you know when New York when people figured out what was going on, which I would have to say was eighty three, maybe eighty between 82 and 83, a pretty much a wholesale panic ensued. You couldn't get a glove for lover money because people mm. wanted to wear 12 pairs of gloves to go to the scene. EMS was like that and cops and firefighters and nurses too. I mean, a lot of nurses yeah, said, no. you know, I'm going to get this and die. And a lot of nurses left the profession because of it. Mm -hmm. That sounds familiar to what's uh, has happened in some yeah. of our- So how do you guys- how you guys feel when the COVID pandemic started? Did you did you see like similarities, or did it you have flashbacks, or how did like how did, well, did, we, did you relive? We were actually um, we were not on the front line. I I'm teaching, so I was seeing um, I was seeing initial in the nursing homes because that's where I teach in skilled facilities. But my daughter, who is a physician's assistant, was on the front line. My uh, my son, who works in radiology transport, was on the front line. And my husband, who is an x-ray tech, was also on the front line. So I was living it. And also my former ICU colleagues, because I worked at St. Francis in Rosalind for uh, 17 years in critical care. So, you know, the book was done with interviews with some of my old colleagues and um, some colleagues that I met really on Facebook COVID groups. Um, so yes, I mean, we, we certainly did see some of the similarities, but, um, it, you know, just if you remember, I mean, all of a sudden, you know, in, in 1980s, we weren't, we, we weren't counting the number of AIDS cases, like right. you saw, like, you know, electoral votes, like you saw, you know, during the, the Trump administration, how many sure. million thousands and then millions of people were getting it and then dying. Um, but yes, I mean, the fear was present in many people back then during the HIV epidemic and certainly more so during the COVID pandemic and more nurses, I think, left nursing uh, during COVID than they did during HIV. I mean, we had a overage of nurses back then. And uh, when Val and I went to uh, work at the second hospital, the first hospital of St. Clair's, by the way, which is the first designated aid center in New York City, and there- You know, I, I actually, I was gonna say, I, I think St. Clair's closed, but I actually did a month of ICU there in early, uh, actually, I was there uh, right when the towers fell on 9-11. Um, oh my I, God. It, it was, yes, it was, um, anyway, there's a famous ICU book there when, it, back in the, when it went to med school in the late 90s or 2000s uh, would read and, the gentleman who did ICU there was the gentleman who wrote the book. Um, but I, you know, I knew that that St. Clair's uh, uh, occupied a very specific niche of this vulnerable population. I think it had always been known, uh, but I was unaware that this was the first, you said HIV. It was the first DAX, the designated AIDS center in New right, York City, right. even they before St. Vincent's, which was the famous one, but uh, yes. 
but we were we were the first and I was the first nurse hired there as a staff nurse and then I became the educator and then I actually became the coordinator and I was there for a little over five years before I was recruited to Lenox Hill Hospital to start their program. Back then there was no DRG for AIDS so you know it was very profitable for hospitals to open up designated centers and they were you know competing for patients yeah, at any given seven time tier reimbursement. You know, it was a very different yeah. reimbursement mm -hmm. at any given time there were you know in New York City there were thousands of people with AIDS in the hospitals mm -hmm. thousands I mean we had in our our unit uh designated unit we had 14 beds but in any time there could have been 60 70 HIV uh patients with AIDS in the hospital yeah, you're um, talking AIDS and all the related uh, OIs or opportunistic infections. Yep. I mean, yep. I always right. tell med students when they rotate with me, it's become, you know, relative, I will not say simple, but going from multiple pills multi, uh, that don't really work uh, multiple times a day to what we call STR, single tablet regimens. Right. Now we've injectable uh, uh, regimens, you know, one injection every 90 days. It's really transformed. But um, mm -hmm. tell me early on, I mean, you know, how was it like back in those days when you just had AZT and not much else? No, we didn't have AZT. This was before no, it, AZT. Early 90s, right? <laughs> yeah, AZT. I mean, came about in, in, in 87. 87. No. So we didn't have so, anything. But so you were just treating the, the end result, the opportunistic infections, right? right. The so and treating symptomatology. Yep. So was, what were we treating? We were treating fevers, nausea, rashes, rashes. Oh my God, like you wouldn't believe. Diarrhea. Wasting, I'm sure. Diarrhea, wasting. horrible yeah. wasting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and we were really chasing our tails. I mean, though. the only, I mean, the things that we could diagnose back then in the 80s was, uh, you know, the MAI. Yes. Um, Mac, we could diagnose cryptosporidiosis from stool we, specimens. Uh, how about cryptococcal meningitis? We did. We, we saw that all the time. All the time. Yeah. Oh with seizures, altered mental status. Yeah. yeah. Amphotericin. Feet, feet, bad fevers and um, change of yeah. mental status. Amphotericin terrible, right? You didn't have much. There was not, not the new antifungal. Nope. Syndrome. Nope. Luganazole was developed while we were in the 90s when we were in Lenox Hill. We, all we had was mm -hmm. amphotericin. As how about how about for a PCP? Did you use a pentamidine? The inhaled pentamidine? Well, I worked a, on that study actually, believe it or not. She but, did. Uh, yeah, pentamidine was is is really a very difficult drug. So we tried hard to desensitize people to Bactrim to try to get Bactrim. them on Bactrim. But it can, it can cause uh, pneumothorax, uh, pneumothorax and things like that. So it's um, well, I mean, not not to mention its effect on kidneys and kidneys, you know, yeah. uh, it's and it's I, a toxic and, drug. And also, blood sugars used to plummet. We didn't know yeah. that. You know, when I I was working in an ICU uh, for a, little, a short time before I joined St. Clair's and a pentamidine would be shipped directly from the CDC in a syringe to be given IM. Um, wow. That was probably back in 84. Um, and we, you know, we didn't know this at the time, but, uh, you know, all of a sudden we had a patient whose blood sugar was like 20 and it was from the pentamidine. Um, we, Unfortunately, you know, as soon as people developed an allergic reaction to Bactrim, rather than treating through it with steroids, we, mm -hmm. we just said, okay, you're allergic. And we switched right away to right. IV pentamidine, which was right. the absolute wrong thing to do. Uh, it was only much later that we desensitized people to Bactrim. Um, so, yeah, the, the pentamidine, the hypoglycemia, um, they always ask on the ID boards, you know, we, we don't use pentamidine anymore. You know, we use uh, Tovacorn or Mepron is, is a drug of choice. Right, right. Mm -hmm. and, and of course, we don't even see it so much anymore because uh, people that are compliant, um, you know, I always tell my patients they, uh, this, they should die of something of old age, diabetes, heart attack, stroke, 
not anything related to HIV. Uh, it's really yeah. It's really been a long time since I've seen anybody with an OI. And yeah. I I worked in ID up until a month ago. <laughs> hmm. Well, um, so. fast forwarding to today and how we're dealing with the pandemic. Did you, um, having experienced that the HIV AIDS epidemic, were you surprised by how our pandemic currently was is dealt with or like uh, any lessons here? learned right. or would have done? Well, I didn't, you know, they, be politically, we, you know, what was going on politically, which and our books are really not political. Politically, what was going on was, was the problem, um, you know, with the lack of PPE. I mean, we didn't have, right. you know, we didn't have a lack of PPE back in the late 70s, early 80s. You know, people just overused it. I mean, when it wasn't even necessary most of the time, you know, standard precautions are now took the place of, you know, I, I worked in uh, another hospital, ICU, where, you know, we were told by the medical director gown, glove, booties, OR hats, double gloves, double gowns. I mean, there were people that were, I I will, I recounted one, there's a, there's a small uh, chapter in the book where um, they wouldn't trach anybody with HIV who was on a ventilator. They would not perform a tracheostomy. They would not contaminate their OR. Uh, there was one patient who finally uh, was scheduled for a tracheostomy and the respiratory therapist would not give us an AMBU bag with a PEEP valve. Um, so, and, and these patients early on were on such high levels of PEEP. Of PEEP um, yeah, 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 and that the patient died on the way to the OR because the AMBU bag we had didn't give any PEEP. So, well, I'll done. tell you early on in the COVID pandemic, uh, you know, as we were, so our institution was labeled the uh, epicenter in, in, in northern New Jersey or even New York tri-state. Uh, and at one time we had over 100 patients in a pop-up ICU, you know, all intubated. It was like something that was incredible. Uh, when I say incredible, it was incredibly sad to see. Uh, but, but before anyone knew what was really happening, um, you know, besides ER docs, ICU docs, uh, ID, renal, no one else was really in the hospital. And then, you know, Clinton can tell you some of these patients will go into renal failure because of remdesivir. And they need to be on hemodialysis and it became very challenging. Do we even dialyze these patients? Will any vascular surgeon come in to put in a vascat? So I, I see these similar, we were talking about similarities there yeah. because yeah, people on, didn't want, didn't really want to go in the room. So or people would say, look, this patient's too sick. We have to triage. We can't save this patient. You know, uh, there was concerns of intubating patients and aerosolizing um, uh, yeah. uh, COVID-19 before we had a better understanding of what was happening. So yeah. Initially we had, to, I remember fighting with doctors who wouldn't want to gallop up and see the patient. Like, you know, this patient, yeah, patient well, needs his procedure. People were they, really sick. They, they were, I mean, and yeah. scared. The the healthcare providers were really scared. Right. I mean, I, mean, I was actually I, sent home because I was the oldest one in the unit. I'm well over 65. So they said, okay, you get to work from home. And I said, well, what? So as soon as COVID hit, I wasn't allowed to see patients. I'm a nurse practitioner. And like hmm. two days before I was seeing like five people with fevers and a cough. And now all of a sudden I wasn't allowed to see patients anymore. So. You were talking about politics. I just had a question. Um, Cause I always tell people, you know, for COVID-19 it's the first pandemic in the social media era. And I don't have to tell our viewers or tell you how everything's been politicized, whether it's testing, whether it's vaccines, whether the fact that it happened during an election season, you know, what have you. But um, what were the politics um, in the early 80s, not just PPE? I mean, if I remember correctly, a lot of activists said it was ignored because of the vulnerable populations that it affected predominantly. Exactly. Uh, if it, and if I we think had Ronald had Reagan, 
we right. would yeah. never have gotten anywhere. That's right. Tell us about that. I mean, was that a, gra a grassroots effort, or was that? I mean, how, how did that uh, come? Sure. About? Yes. Sure. It was. Act I mean, up was act up gay in uh, gay men's health crisis right. started probably about 1981, uh, and then act up with Larry Kramer and Peter Staley. Mm -hmm. um, you know, most of the uh, gay population um, they were using their voices. They were not going to go quietly. And they ended up speaking for other members of the population um, that got AIDS. Um, what Ronald Reagan didn't mention AIDS until uh, what, 85? It was two I, years. You know? It was like two years into his, oh no, it's the second um, term before he it said It was the anything. second term, I remember that yeah. as a kid. He wouldn't, that was he wouldn't even he say that. Ignored it. Yeah. 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 He never said anything he, about it. There was money being given to it. So just so you should not think that nothing was being done. The NIH obtained funding, the mm -hmm. AIDS Clinical Trials Group, of which I was a it, member it, it, for it, many it, years, yeah. um, uh, was funneled some of that money. The first AZT trials, the first DDI, the first DDC, mm -hmm. all of those mm -hmm. things went through the uh, ACDG with NIH money. Um, but it's not the kind of money that got thrown at COVID, let me tell you. There yeah. were, you know, I mean, I mean, we had a lot, there were a lot of celebrities that jumped on the HIV bandwagon and raised money, certainly Elizabeth Taylor, Elton John, you know, when, when Rock mm -hmm. Hudson died, when Freddie Mercury died, you know, yeah. the Phoenix Mercury Foundation was was uh, started. So there was a- And Hollywood, Hollywood got involved as well, right? I mean, Rock Hudson, I think very famously uh, yeah. uh, passed. Magic Johnson. Well. I mean, yeah, that, you know, when we had- that was my recollection had, of uh, yeah. HIV AIDS was when, you know, Magic Johnson at his, his press conference. Right. Um, I was in elementary school. I think I was in seventh or eighth grade. <laughs> I spent more time on the phone with people after Magic Johnson's interview. Oh wow. my God. Yeah. It's amazing. So, and now we have your background. I'd love to hear more about, it's not just book, which is fascinating, books, right? One fiction and one nonfiction? No, no, they're both the sort of the same. One is the the HIV book is our lived experience. Our, yes. our That's our own story. And uh, the second one was, uh, was based on reality, but because we didn't live it, we wrote it as a novel. Mm -hmm. So that, that's the second novel. Uh, second book is a work of fiction. Um, What's the name of that book? Just so we can have our-, our Beyond uh, the Mask. Beyond the Mask. And the first one, let, 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 I would like, you know, like to hear about the first one, the, the name of the first- uh, Nurses, on, Nurses on the Inside, Stories of the HIV AIDS Epidemic ah. in New York City. What, what prompted you or inspired you? Well, I, I think we know what inspired you, but what prompted you to say, hey, you know, we need to put this, this story into print? Was it just the fact that you saw all the- um, in action initially or, or some of no, the, the I mean, we wrote Nurses on the Inside um, that came out in 2019. So we were writing it probably in 2017, you know, took mm. multiple attempts to get it published. And we ended up with an indie publisher because, you know, uh, most uh, traditional publishers didn't think it was commercial enough, nor would it sell. But um, the, the impetus for that book, honestly, and I tell this story all the time, is I, I had a reunion with uh, you know, people that I went to grade school with. So we went to each other's bar mitzvahs, bat mitzvahs. And uh, when we went around the room and said, okay, what have you been doing for the last 50 years? Uh, I said, I was a nurse for 15 years in the HIV epidemic. And then one of my friends said, you should write a book. And I said, yeah. nah, I'm not, you know, I'm not an author. I don't write, you know, and then I don't know, a couple of months later, I 
I just sat down on my computer and I realized how, how many memories were flooding back to me. I mean, names, dates, birthdays, dates of passing that I remembered, uh, you know, specific patient scenarios. I mean, I just remembered them. And, and since that, that time, I've taken care of thousands of critical care patients, none of whom I remember, uh, as well as I remembered the patients with HIV that I took care of in the 80s and 90s. I, I remembered their names. I remember when they died. I remember those their memories partners. are just kind of burned. They will your, they will be there opinion. forever. I mean, and, and forever. you would assume you would assume that something like that would never happen again. And that would be relevant. But like now it's like that should be mandatory reading for. Well, can I tell you the way we ended the book was how we thought that this might come around again. And little and did we know that less did. than two years later, it would. Wow. Come around again. Yeah. How do you, how do you go about writing? This is a separate note. How do you go about um, putting words on the paper? You know, because, actually uh, either you can use use a, a pencil and a paper or you can type. Some people <laughs> well, actually just what type. I meant was. I carved it into a block of wood right. myself. But, uh, did you do the writing yourself? Did you, I, did you I whittled, I whittled yeah. it. Oh. I have this dream where like, I'm going to sit in a coffee shop, take a, a hiatus from work and just drink coffee and write my memoirs. Um, and then, you know. Do you have that. long flowing hair in your dream? How's the hair? Yes, yeah, it's going to be a Bollywood, it's going to be made to a Bollywood uh, made for TV movie, the whole thing. <laughs> Dancers in the background, that'd be cool. That's right. <laughs> no, but all things aside, how, how, I think it's fascinating that you took this idea, you said, hey, I, I really want to put this to print, but how do you, what's the actual, I think a lot of people may think that way, but how do you actually go about it? You guys the, I mean, them. I wrote what I remembered in the first person, you know, First person, yeah. I wrote it in the first person and I would send it to Valerie. And she wrote it in the first person. When we ultimately went, ended up signing with an indie publisher, they wanted us to turn it into third person. And so and novelize it more. Well, and novelize it. Yes. Not, I'm sorry. There's somebody mowing their lawn back there. So um, that's the noise. But um, from? the uh, they and sensationalize it. Yes. 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 <laughs> it was, yes we we went with an indie publisher who are probably about your ages who really you know from ohio who really probably never met a gay person in their life and they wanted to sensationalize uh a lot of it and then finally we just put our foot down and said no we'll turn it into the third person and uh we'll rewrite it so um that that's what ultimately happened is we did have to take control because otherwise we would have had some you know very outlandish cliche you know hackneyed expressions which we did not want we wanted it to be close to our lives because it is our personal story so you um, want to be true to yourself yeah sure so, so one of the things that they wanted to do is because i'm gay they wanted to sort of sensationalize my romance with uh with my wife and like a love story uh, and and it was like a love story. story yes and it you know i said no thanks I mean, it's yeah. in there. There's there's some things in there, but it's not it's factual. Yes. 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 We wanted we wanted to stick with the facts. You know, we didn't. You know, again, you know, all the hackneyed expressions. You know, the there's love not, no bullshit or, dialogue. You know, right. yeah, yeah. We two, we two are no bullshit people. We don't want any nonsense uh, floating around. So, and and then with the second book, uh, we, you know, we I. I did a lot of the interviewing. Um, uh, the second book, when, when did you start the second book? 
Well, the second book just came out earlier this year. We started it in we started it in April or May of 2020. 2020. So okay, I was working on the remdesivir study at the time. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so what right. I was doing was chart reviews and data extraction. And so I was, you know, familiar with the medical histories of everybody who was admitted to the hospital, the hospital yeah. where I worked at the time. And um, so uh, it, that was quite a big deal. And it was, I, when I say that I was really anxious about the world falling apart, I really thought it was the end of the world and I, I needed to be busy. So actually working 17 hours a day on remdesivir wasn't enough. I had to, I had to fill up the rest of the hours of the day with Ellen, going back and forth with Ellen about the book. Mm-hmm. But, you know, on a day-to-day uh, basis, how we did it is that she wrote some stuff and sent it to me, and then I wrote some stuff and sent it to her. And sometimes if it needed a little polishing, you know, I I do that, or we had a friend who helped us with some of it also. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. tell, us about the, tell us about the book, Beyond the Mask. It's six stories or one hospital? Well, you know, if you, uh, I know you were quoting from the back of the book, which is the synopsis of the book. And, yes. and basically we took six, six healthcare workers, um, uh, nurses, nurses aides, um, and somebody from one of the allied professions, uh, x-ray. And um, we did a lot of interviews and we compiled multiple stories and created one character. Okay. So uh, we have three three separate uh, units, um, and it, you know, in any hospital you could imagine, we didn't choose the hospital. It, it's somewhere in New York, and um, I so, always imagined where it was was yeah. in Queens. Yes, yeah, so we, so. we did imagine where it, we, you know, Queens, it was kind okay. of after Elmhurst Hospital. Um, well, for I Ellen, it was the, Elmhurst. For me, yeah. it was uh, New York Hospital Queens, which used to be called. Booth Memorial, Booth Memorial, like yeah. the hospital where we went when we were sick when I was a kid, but uh, <laughs> that's where I imagined it. Right, I, I I imagined Elmhurst because I that was my first job when I worked there in critical care. And when Elmhurst 70s. was such a pit of despair, and it so, still is, incidentally. Shout out to Elmhurst. Secretly recorded stuff going on at Elmhurst Hospital and and then posted it online. Uh, um, yeah. Oh. Like, like what, for instance, like just and now you piqued my interest here. Well, um, there was a nurse who, who secretly recorded um, behind her doctors who were talking about patients saying, oh, this one's not going to make it. Let's keep going. Keep, keep going. Keep going. Um, and it really just stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people being denied meds. This one's this one's too old. Keep going. You know, keep going. Uh, there was a lot of stuff like that recorded. Well, you know, um, keeping in mind triage is a real yes. thing. Yes. You know, I think that you'll, if you ever do read our book, there's a scene in the tent in the emergency room that I think was probably pretty real. And and it was humanely, it was humane. It was not horrible. I mean, sometimes you just have to say, I'm not going to put you through the torment because we're, it's going to be fruitless anyway. Mm-hmm. I mean, that and, is true. There's a fine line between, you know, what might be deemed or viewed as inhumane or unjust and what you know what ERs do is triage and right I can tell you uh in our ER you know we were having uh, people intubate being intubated in the hallway right there was patients uh, our ICU was full we almost we never did quite run out of ventilators we came very close we had to bring out some very old ventilators um you know from retirement you know uh, 
and these patients were being intubated everywhere. And at some point we had to have, say, look, have conversation with palliative care and say, an 88-year-old is coming in, you know, uh, uh, and do we intubate this patient who's demented? You know, we need that, we need to understand that that so that those those conversations were being had. They you know, definitely well, were being had. Of, and I'm not saying that it's a bad were, thing. It's yeah, a lot, yeah. A lot of facilities were making decisions based on the resources they, they had. So mm -hmm. um, I, I think it was just in the way that they were doing was, it. My institution was well funded and we had to give you an idea, we have over 250 ORs alone, and every one of them was filled with a COVID patient. There was wow. no surgery. Everybody, although yeah. all those anesthesia machines were being used as respirators because all the ICU beds mm -hmm. were filled. Yeah, the, so, I mean, the, the people mm -hmm. that we talked to, I mean, conference rooms were taken over with COVID patients, yeah. all the, the pediatric ICUs, pediatric units were taken over. Even some of the NICUs were taken over. I don't and know. Our entire, our entire um, auditorium was mm -hmm. uh, made into a tent COVID unit. You know, remember three? Oh my God. Yeah. It, it cleared out all the chairs and then uh, it was actually made as a auditorium, but also as a um, separate water supply, everything. So in case there was ever, you know, a, a major issue or mass casualty uh, event, mm -hmm. but um, it, this is a place I used to give grand rounds or, or 10 lectures or give lectures or listen to lectures. And all of a sudden we have these three massive tents in there with uh, all filled with COVID patients. It was, um, That's and of course, amazing. yeah. And then of course, you know, not allowing visitors to come in. So we were, you know, seeing people die alone. I, I held up the phone. I'm sure you did. Or FaceTime. Yeah. Yeah. That was uh, the cruelest thing. About, yes. Yeah. Yeah. My daughter, my daughter told me all about that. You know, she was on an iPad and FaceTiming yes. relatives, um, you know, and they were, you know, just stalking and, and just wandering around outside wondering what to do. And, um, but, but I, you know, as far as the book is concerned, um, we have, we, we, we memorialized the first five months of of COVID, of the pandemic from January, 2020 to May, 2020. Um, and the reason that we did that is because people are beginning to forget again what it was like at the very beginning, just like they forgot or weren't born yet at the beginning of the AIDS epidemic. And um, you know, certainly a lot of people that are in healthcare today were not born or around or in healthcare during the HIV epidemic. And we'll find the same thing happening with the COVID pandemic. And you know, people are used to having enough PPE right now and people are used to you know, there being swabs. I, I work in a skilled facility with my students now. And you know, at the beginning we were swabbed twice a week and then it was down once, to, once a week. And then if you weren't right. vaccinated, you gotta get swabbed. And there was there were so many resources that then, you know, between 2021 and 2022 now that we have. And, you know, we and were it, it's it's all changed. And at the beginning, you know, we we wrote the book in, in kind of the first three chapters of emergency room critical care and an orthopedic unit. Um, and uh, like the calm before the storm where, right. where things things, strange things were happening, you know, all of a sudden one day the PPE was locked up, you know, and then you were, you were assigned a certain amount of PPE. Uh, we used to reuse our mask and we were told to put it in these clear plastic correct. bags, yes. the air, the light right. would help. Would help light. Longevity, but, right? you know, nobody, the problem is, is that nobody was told why. I mean, at nursing school, like we would, we would be chastised if you, if you so much as left a patient room 
wearing the mask and gloves. Yes. You were supposed to de-glove, de-mask the gown and throw it all out. And then if you had to go back in that same room, you used so another we, set, you know, so this right. was completely foreign to everything we had ever learned. And nobody ever said why. They just said, you can't have more. You and, can't have more. Well, certainly communication was a big issue, right? It Whether was it was bad. Doctors from the CDC of what to do, right. uh, how long tests will be taken. You know, that messaging, I think, was set the wrong tone from the beginning of and, and right. kind of well a lot idea. of that had to do with who uh was running the country at the time clearly the irony of it well go ahead sorry the irony of it now is we have we had all this access to information quick information uh early diagnostic tools um how long did it take for us to figure out a lot about covid it, it didn't take that long right but you guys mm. were living through, through years, like years before years. you knew what the virus was, much less how to attack the virus. And we're complaining about the scientists don't know what they're doing and you're giving wrong information. So just so to give, all of us. give you an Look example. Look at how fast we had a vaccine to produce. Yeah, I mean, just to give you an example of the difference in the timeline, <clears throat> we saw our first patients in 1979. We didn't get an antiretroviral, only one, until 1987. It wasn't widely available until 1989. Wow. We got the second one almost uh let me see was that ddi was, or yeah uh, second one was ddi DDI. <laughs> and then uh i can remember having this whole big argument with gabe torres who was a big id fellow at the time i mean when i say fellow he wasn't attending but sure about whether we use the drug sequentially or together now obviously uh always AZ, together right always well not as anymore no but, but you use you know common combination piece of all heart now combination antiretroviral therapy yeah sure. and so right, then it took it took until 1995 to get a viral load mm. we didn't have we didn't know what we were doing we were looking in the rear view mirror with t-cells for all that time and i'll tell you that's why Thank i you. felt very uh discouraged when all, you know, fast forward to now with the sharing information globally, uh, the, sequ the virus uh, SARS-CoV-2 was sequenced by the middle of January and it was only described to WHO December 31st, 2019. It was already seen later. By sequencing, you could say, okay, it's a coronavirus, family virus, it's RNA virus. They start working on antivirals like Gil uh, Gilead's Remdesivir, repurposing it from, you know, initially looked at for Ebola and other things. And yet people still said, well, you know, these are coming in, you know, this is all this, we can't trust the scientific establishment. And uh, it was very disheartening, you know, because on one hand, you have all this great sharing of scientific data. And now we have the ability to sequence uh, RNA, you know, the, the RNA uh, vaccines, um, which are just incredible, right? Just to have these, this technology available. Um, <laughs> it was very disheartening to see how it had become politicized. So yes, it was shocking. I, yeah, for sure. But I would love to know, you know, because Clearly, in our time here, we've established uh, all your experience and 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 obviously why you would be well uh, qualified to write books. So where where can we find this? Oh wait, wait. I, before you get into that, I have an idea for a new book. I think. Um, oh, you do. Yeah, right, the, the protagonist is a uh, youthful, amazingly handsome uh, kidney doctor, oh, uh, <laughs> and he's he's fighting an evil old. Infectious disease doctor who's trying Old to take over the world. Yes. <laughs> you both get perm casts for that. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Not a pick. You know, it's interesting in the facility that I am working with students at. Um, what we are seeing now is patients with long COVID who were yes, treated, yes. Um, you know, 
are, are I work on a ventilator unit, so they are trached, pegged, and uh, on dialysis. Uh, the uh, the patients who have had long COVID, who were treated excessively with remdesivir and steroids. And now we're seeing the long COVID patients in the skilled facility. And that's you know, a shame. Um, it is, there's actually now opening uh, throughout New York City. Uh, and we're, part of my hat here is also running a lot of clinical trials on the, our medical director of our research institute. But you know, there's a lot of interest now in long COVID. Um, and, depending on what you ask, between 20, 30% of all patients will have some aspects of long COVID, whether it's uh, headaches now, especially with Omicron, uh, chronic cough, exercise intolerance, uh, et cetera, or, you know, neurological issues, uh, neuropathy, uh, uh, alterations in taste and smell. It's a very big issue. And as more and more the population now gets natural uh, immunity from COVID by natural infection, we're going to see more and more people dealing with this. But, um, you know, I feel like we could talk all day about all your experiences. I would like to, you know, end by first of all, thanking you both for all your hard work. And I will tell you as an ID doc, uh, you know, and obviously I trained uh, in, in the 2000s, right? So, but uh, hearing all the stories of what it was like uh, in the late 70s and 80s with limited resources, uh, without even understanding, you know, um, uh, the, the true nature of this disease is really incredible. Um, you know, by the time I got there, yes, I put central lines in plenty of HIV patients. Yes, we double gloved. Uh, I knew people that had to take PrEP or, you know, a post-exposure prophylaxis. So now we have PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis. None of that existed in your time. And, and yet you guys put yourselves in harm's way uh, for a disease that no one really understood. Uh, uh, so that, that is incredibly admirable. So and no one cool. probably put a sign on your yard. I mean, you guys are really true heroes. And no, nobody put us in. Not that I have yeah. a yard. I mean, I live in Manhattan. Or, so. or you got a discount at Nike. I get discounts because I'm a, a healthcare oh, hero. Yeah. But you, you know, guys are the true heroes. It's, uh, it's interesting, though. Um, when some of the very kind rejections we got from potential agents that I sent the manuscript to of Nurses on the Inside, they sent mm -hmm. us back, you know, you are true heroes, like like uh, soldiers coming back from war and da 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 da, -da but we're not going to publish your book. And, and um, you know, I, and I, I can say that I speak for both of us is that, you know, we never considered that, uh, you know, we mm. never considered us heroes. I mean, we, we had a job to do and we put one foot in front of the other and we, Valerie and I, we, we worked together for so long, you know, almost 20 years and, and we helped each other. And I called her from a different department. And I said, I need help with this patient. And she would call me and say, have you got a bed for this patient? And, you know, we, we just collaborated our entire career through HIV, um, you know, including when we were both administrators of HIV programs and we both would put on scrubs and go and figure out how to contain uh, severe cryptosporidiosis on a patient, you know, trying folates <clears throat> rectal tubes. And, you know, I mean, we did, we did this. It's all in the book. It's, uh, books are on Amazon. And, um, so they're on Amazon. You can, can, can you go, um, well, first of all, is there a Cliff Notes? Because I know Clinton sometimes has a short attention span. <laughs> They're very no, short. No. You'll be able to get through them in a very short period. Of time. They are very available. <laughs> they available both in print as yes, well yes. as ebooks. Well. E yes. in print, e yeah, both of them. But yeah, the you know They're short. <laughs> we didn't want to overwhelm people. <laughs> Listen, if you're no, in the healthcare I, field, you should be reading. This is uh, mandatory literature. 
we, uh, we hope, you, you know, we hope so. I mean, we hope so that, that people will, will take our work seriously. You know, we always are looking for influencers to, to get our word out there and get our experiences out there. And, um, you know, if you look at Amazon, you know, we have 190 something reviews of nurses on the inside and we have about 18 or so uh, reviews now of Beyond the Mask. And a lot of people uh, have written that they've uh, appreciated the uh, back and forth between uh, nonfiction and fiction in, mm. in Beyond the Mask that we were able to tie together, you know, some kind of fictional uh, characters with the the reality because the reality, the reality right. is is that when I interviewed nurses like from Maryland, Nevada, Texas, just to name a few places that we interviewed on Facebook Messenger or text or phone call, they they didn't want to give their name. They said if you use my name or place where I work, I can't authorize you to do anything. Yeah. So when we were we were querying for an agent for this book. They said, why can't it be nonfiction? It has to be nonfiction right. and then I'll represent you. And I said, because it can't, because nurses, nursing is a small community, even though we're a huge community, we are a small community and I'm not outing any one of my colleagues from any state right. you know, to right. mention anything that may be Made uh, detrimental to their uh, to their career. You know, nurses right. were fired because they wanted to wear hospital scrubs. You know, they didn't want to wear their own uniform. They wanted to wear hospital scrubs. There was a nurse in in uh, Texas that was fired for that. Or if they were concerned about the lack of PPE and they yes. called out. And they right. talked about right. it, yes. They talked about it on the pretense that we would not mention who they were or where they worked. And that's well, why we had- So a lot of the stories, them. you know, I fleshed it out a little bit with stories from my patients and other nurses that I knew that were not at all involved and weren't even the same gender maybe. I really sure. sort of switched everything around. But mm -hmm. I did a lot of backstories on people uh, just to try to set the scene. But right. that's all fiction. So, but you know, the stories that you were telling are uh, of utmost importance, clearly. Anything we can do to help, uh, certainly we'll, we'll post uh, links on our YouTube channel and, um, you know, anyone that, and, and put as well as uh, in the summaries of, our, of this podcast uh, episode. So, it'd be our pleasure to um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's mm -hmm. so important. And you can just sense, and Clint and I can both just sense the, enthusiasm the passion, passion. and of course it just rings through all your experience uh so i have to tell you it was a real pleasure to have you both thank you thank you very much thank you yeah so uh you know from my esteemed colleague dr clayton coleman i'm dr serge sugger this is recommend daily dose thank you so much to our guests today please support uh their books we'll post uh, uh links on our youtube channel please don't forget to rate uh, listen and subscribe to recommend daily dose until next time be well